Good morning, College Park. Please join me in turning to Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we need the truths of Romans 5. We need them not just because they are true and because they are right, but because there are moments in life that will happen if we live long enough on the earth that this is the only anchor that we'll be able to cling to. And so today I pray that you would help us to understand what is here You'd help us to feel the weight and the wonder of the beauty of this text. And then you would comfort those who are in hardship, that you would prepare those who someday will face it, and that you would pour mercy and grace upon us through this text. Holy Spirit, be our teacher and do um, what we hear and what um, what I say with power, please. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God is not boring. Theology is relevant and Christianity works. I hope you believe that. One of the reasons that I'm a Christian is because I believe that the Bible is indeed true. Because I have seen personally with my own eyes and through life the way in which a personal relationship with Jesus can change people radically. I've seen it thousands and thousands and thousands of times. One of the reasons I love being a pastor and teaching the Bible is because I am convinced that what is written for us in the Scriptures is real, it's practical, and it's helpful. In other words, I believe with all my heart that there's a connection between big, sweeping, important theological truths and real life. And every once in a while you you see a connection that's just so clear and so evident. We're hopefully going to see that connection in Romans chapter 5. But I, I saw this very well illustrated last Sunday when on Facebook a, a picture emerged that just stunned me. The picture was taken by the father of Tyler Trent, a teenager in our church who's on his third round of chemotherapy, and on the door of his hospital room, he had written the gospel narrative, God is my help, or rather, God is holy, I am not, Jesus saves, Christ is my life. That's the gospel, and if you look closely, you can see the reflection of dad taking the picture and the hospital bed on the left side of the photo. The reason that that image struck me and the reason that I use it as the illustration of 
beginning Romans is because of the fact that there is a connection between big theological truths and where we live every single day. God is not boring. He's not boring. Theology is relevant and Christianity works. Do you believe that? I hope you do. I hope to be able to show you today why and how that works. Today we're resuming our expositional study of the book of Romans. We're going back to it. We've been away for a while. You've been wonderfully led in my absence this summer through a study of the book of Philippians. And today we're back to this glorious and wonderful book. We're going to cover chapter 5, 6, and 7 up until Christmas. And then in chapter 8, we'll begin that in January and February. You could think of chapter 8 really as the summit, if you will. It's, it's the big mountaintop that we can't wait to get to. We're going to spend like five or six weeks just on chapter 5 or just on chapter 8. But today we're in chapter 5, which really could be considered the foothills of chapter 8. We're going to climb to the top in chapter 5 and realize this is wonderful. And then what in the world is that mountain? There's all sorts of parallels. Romans 5 identifies the benefits, identifies the effects, and the ramifications of what we have seen in chapters 1 through 4. Now, I don't presume that you remember um, all of what we've gone through in the book of Romans. I don't remember all of what we've gone through. But hopefully, this one word will be somewhere lodged in your memory that the single most important word in the book of Romans, really the summary of what the book about is about, is the word righteousness. It is the central message of the book. We saw that theme emerge in the first three chapters, which were dark and gloomy. If you remember, as we walked through those first three chapters, there was a sense of, boy, we can't wait till we get to the hope part, and we're there. Welcome to hope. In chapter 1, Paul established the sinfulness of those who reject God's moral authority in their lives. He paints a picture, a dark picture, as to what that rejection looks like. And then in chapter 2, it's not just about those who reject his moral authority, but even those who, by their religiosity, think that they're actually moral. And so Paul shows how both the religious person and the immoral person are both under God's judgment. He says in Romans chapter 3 that no one is righteous. There's no one who seeks after God. No one can be right with him by and in and of themselves. So chapters 1 through 3 is all about the, the, the darkness of the human condition. In the last half of chapter 3, Paul turns and addresses the matter of faith. How do people receive the righteousness of God? How are they declared righteous? How are they reconciled with Him? And he identifies that the righteous become righteous by faith. And he uses the example of Abraham and then applies that to us. In summary then, what we've seen so far is the righteousness that God demands and the righteousness that we failed to achieve in chapters 1 to 3 is the righteousness that He gives in chapter 4. So chapters 1 to 2 were about the revealing of God's righteousness. Chapters 3 and 4 were about the gift of righteousness. And today we begin a new section on the hope of God's righteousness. In Romans chapter 5, there's a phrase that's very important. 
It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's the phrase right there. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And today, what I want to do is answer two key questions as it relates to that particular phrase, peace with God. What does it mean that we have peace with God? That's the first question that we're going to answer. And the second question that we're going to answer is, why does peace with God help us in hardship? So again... God is not boring, theology is relevant, and Christianity works. So the question that I want to try and help answer today is, how does peace with God, this beautiful, wonderful, theological idea, how does that idea really help in hardship? So let's try and answer those questions. Question one, what does it mean to have peace with God? I'm not sure whether it's more difficult to define for you a phrase that you don't know very well at all, or whether it's more difficult to define a phrase that you think you know the definition of. To have peace with God means much more than what we realize. So what does Paul mean by this idea of peace with God? three things. First, it means that we are justified by faith. Look at verse 1. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That first little word, therefore, is a interpretive marker pointing back to what we have already seen and heard in Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, Paul used Abraham, the ultimate expression of righteousness for Jewish people, as an example of somebody who was justified by faith, as somebody who was not justified by their works, but instead believed God, and it was, according to the text, accredited to him or counted to him as righteousness. Look at chapter 4 and verse 3. Just go back there for a moment. Here's what it says. For what does the Scripture say... Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul's point is the way that someone becomes righteous, even a commendable and and, and hero in the faith like Abraham, the way that Abraham became righteous was not by the things that he did, but rather that righteousness comes to those who believe, not by their works, but instead by believing what God says he will do for them. So by Abraham believing what God said he would do, the text says it was counted to him as righteousness. And then if you go to chapter 4 and verse 23, you'll see that Paul then makes the connection between Abraham's experience and our own. He says, but these words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification so to have peace with God means first and foremost that we are justified what does it mean to be justified justified means that God through Christ has declared somebody to be righteous it appears all over the book of Romans especially in the first three chapters and the question connected with the issue of justification is this how is someone made righteous with God do they make themselves righteous or does God make them righteous and the answer from the Bible is that the righteousness that God requires the righteousness that his holiness demands is a righteousness that God gives he gives righteousness as a gift So righteousness or justification is something that God does to us and for us. So then justification 
is an act of God's grace. An act whereby God changes our relationship with Him. And the effect of that change is we then have peace with God. Romans 8, 33 puts it this way. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. What does that mean? It means that if the sovereign God of the universe who controls everything and from whom everything in life flows, if he's the greatest being, understands the terms of justice, is defined what is right and wrong, if that God who rules over all declares you to be justified and declares you to be righteous, there is nobody, there is nothing that exists in all of the created order who could ever question or challenge that reality. doesn't matter who or what they are. The devil himself can't challenge that because God has declared once and for all that these people are my own and there's nothing in the world that can touch them it's a beautiful reality of god's grace peace with god is due to justification by faith a completed act whereby god gives us the righteousness that he requires so what does it mean to have peace with god it means first that we are justified secondly it means that we are no longer god's enemies since we have been justified by faith we have peace with with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's this term, this peace with God. Let me try and help you understand what this means. The problem is that when we use the word peace, we often use it in, in an emotional way in terms of like being internally settled. We use it to describe it like when we're making big decisions. I, I decided to take the job and I prayed about it and I had peace. And that's a legitimate way to use peace, but that's not what Paul has in mind. Or maybe we use it in terms of, oh, I had a wonderful weekend. I went to the lake and it was so peaceful. It's a, a way to use the word peace, but that's not what Paul has in mind here either. They don't capture the depth and the meaning of what Paul is driving at. What he means, and I've already identified this in, even in the wording of this second point, he means that we are no longer God's enemies. Peace with God means that the hostility and the enmity and the separation between God and us has ended through the work of Jesus. It means that God is no longer against us because of our sin. It means that God's wrath is no longer directed toward us, that God is no longer angry with us because of our sin. Does the idea of God's wrath towards sin make you at all uncomfortable? I wouldn't be surprised if it did, just a bit, because it's not the way that our culture thinks about God. It's not the way that even Christians often talk about God. We, we talk about God's love more than His wrath. And in one level, that makes a lot of sense. In fact, there's a gospel presentation that, that starts something like this. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And that's exactly true, but it's not all of the truth. I mean, at one level, it makes sense that we tell people that God loves them because he does. And it doesn't make a lot of sense. And it's maybe too offensive to tell them that God is angry with them because of their sin. I mean, imagine a marketing campaign from our church that had billboards out that says, God is angry with you. Services at 8. 9.45 at 11.30. Right? Just maybe not real wise. But the fact of the matter is, it's true. 
Not that our services are at that time. That is true. But what's true is the fact that, that God, he does love us, John three sixteen. But he also is angry with the rebellion, rebelliousness of a world that has lost its way, a brokenness that's around us. So if you read the newspaper or you watch what's happening around you or you see things and you're like, what in the world is happening? You know the answer to that question. The answer to the question is that God is angry with the world. The world is broken and he's given us over to the sinfulness of our own designs. He said, in effect, if you want to live this way, then go for it and see what the net result is. It is that God's wrath, according to Romans chapter 1, is being revealed. Or according to Romans 5, that we were God's enemies. Part of the beauty of God's grace is what we were and what we were prior to Christ were those who were the objects of God's wrath. Romans 8, again, the summit tells us that there is a fundamental hostility between us and God, that we resist His law, we cannot please Him in and of ourselves, that our natural disposition between us and God is not one of natural love, but rather naturally we are hostile, we are against Him, we don't want to listen to Him, we don't want to respond to Him, and this reality of God being against us in His wrath is eternally dangerous. To think that a sovereign God who rules over all of creation, who sets the standards for right and wrong, and has the power to save or to damn, to think that he would be angry with you is a scary proposition. And yet it is solved by the atonement of Jesus. So on the one hand, we have to understand the beauty of the gospel, but on the other hand, we have to understand the problem that was our sinfulness that creates the beauty of the gospel. So to say that we are at peace with God means that we are no longer His enemies. You have to understand that single reality that has to be a sweet reality to you, a powerful reality, or the rest of what is communicated in Romans chapter 5 really is of no consequence. What does it mean to have peace with God? It means we are no longer God's enemies. It means that we are justified by faith. And it also means, third, that we have access to Him by grace. In other words, we have a new standing. It says, through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. That word access means that there is a new relationship that we have with our God. Paul uses it in places like Ephesians 2 to describe the new reality that we have. He says this in Ephesians 2.17, He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. And through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So peace with God then is not an emotional condition. It is an emotional condition, but it's not just an emotional condition. Peace with God, first and foremost, is a legal standing. It is the granting of access to the presence of a holy God that would be impossible and dangerous were it not for the atonement of Jesus. So to say that we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand is just another way of Paul saying that we are justified by faith, but to say it in a way perhaps that even has a more relational context because the idea is that we're coming to him. We have access. Paul will say this differently in Romans 8. He'll use terms like, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
So what this means is that through Jesus, we are more than just former enemies. We have a legal standing that we are the graced sons and daughters of God. Now, what is the point of Paul putting these three things together like this? What is, what is he doing here? What's he trying to help us understand? What he's trying to do here is to overwhelm us with the beauty and the power and the stunning transformation that is embedded with everything that peace with God means. So you've got to take this little phrase, peace with God, and you've got to get it up, 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 up in its beauty. You've got to lift it up and realize that this idea of peace with God is not a lower level term. This is the essence of everything, that we have made peace with God, or rather better, God has made peace with us. To say that we have peace with God means that a holy God who was grieved and righteously angry with the sinfulness of his creation in general and specifically with my participation in that rebellion has now established a new relationship with me he has cleansed me of my sin he's forgiven me of everything that i've done he's ushered me into a new relationship with him and so that marker the marker over my life now is mark vrogup is at peace with god god and him are at peace together and that one thing is the one thing that changes everything It means that we were his enemies, and now we were at peace. We were in great danger, and now we're saved. It means that those who are in Christ have peace with God, and nothing could be more important than this reality and this one thing. It does. It changes absolutely everything, and it even changes how you deal with hardship. So if you're here today and you don't have peace with God, what I'm, what I'm about to say with hardship, you, you, you don't have a place to hang hardship. You don't have the framework in your mind and heart for which you can then define what's happening to you. Because the fundamental issue in your life is not the things that have happened to you. The issue in your life that is most dangerous and most pressing is not the stuff that you're going through, but rather the fact that God with whom this very day you are not in a right relationship with. That is the main issue. Once that issue is resolved, then we're able to move on to the second question, which is, why does peace with God help us in hardship? How does peace with God help us in hardship? Look at verse 3. He says, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. That is not a normal statement. If you've read the Bible for any time, if you've been in church, you probably are familiar with that concept. But if you were to read the Bible for the first time, you would say, what? We rejoice in sufferings? So how in the world can Paul say that? Why does he say that? And why is that in fact true? Again, how does peace with God connect with this matter of hardship? Well, it's because first and foremost, the Bible changes us such that we end up loving the right things. Let me show you this. In verse 2, it says, Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And then it says this, And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now this 
This little phrase, rejoice in hope of the glory of God, could have gone with the previous point, but because it has the word rejoice in it, I linked it with what's coming now in regards to hardship. It relates to both, but I want you to see what happens here, and that is that something beautiful takes place in the heart of a follower of Jesus because of the fact that you have peace with God. Suddenly, God creates in you an appetite, a love, a longing, a desire for something you would never have prior to conversion. And what that love is, is you love, you have tasted and you have developed an appetite for the value of the glory of god this is the remarkable difference between somebody who is converted and somebody who's unconverted the unconverted person wants glory for them they love and cherish glory they want life to be safe with no pain and no issues and no challenges and the reality is that passion is because of their own desire for their own glory and what happens when god invades your life and grants peace to you Through the shed blood of Jesus, suddenly you long for the glory of God, a taste that you would have never had had God not given it to you. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This idea of glory of God, it's used all over the Bible. In the video you heard earlier, Habakkuk 2 was mentioned, that day when the glory of God covers or the knowledge of the glory of God rather covers the earth like the water covers the sea. If you, haven't, if you don't have peace with God, why in the world would you care about the glory of God? The reason you care about the glory of God is because you have tasted and seen the Lord's goodness. And you've seen the Lord's goodness in peace with Him. The Bible tells us that even the future glory of heaven and the new heavens and the new earth will be the manifest display of the glory of God. That the glory of God in the new Jerusalem is the glory of God, and the glory of the new Jerusalem is also the light of new Jerusalem. God's glory is central to the message of grace because it's the rejection of God's glory that is the essence of sinfulness. Listen to Romans 1. We've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So what is sin? Sin is essentially saying, I'd rather have my own glory than God's glory. That's the essence of sin. Romans 3, the entire human race, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And yet there is something beautiful of this future hope of the restoration of God's glory, not just in all of creation, but also in the hearts and lives of every believer. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says that believers are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, which means that we are becoming, by virtue of what God is doing to us and through us, we're becoming more and more like the image of Jesus. Well, how in the world do you even desire that if you don't have peace with God? You don't. So what happens is that God creates an appetite, a longing, a desire A leaning towards his glory. Romans 8 says that suffering pales in comparison to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And that even creation groans and waits for the day for the revealing of the glory of the children of God. So the glory of God and the glory of God manifests through the people of God is the new appetite that God has created. So if you're reading the Bible, or you're even hearing what I'm saying, or you're singing songs, and there's something within you that's like, yes, this is true, and I love this, you need to know that did not come from your human heart. Your human heart would say, how come they're not singing about me? 
How come they're not saying, we salute me? Because that's what we want. I want to salute me. I want to raise my hands to me. That's the natural inclination of the human heart. And it is a miracle of God's grace based upon the peace of God through the work of Jesus that suddenly now we have a new appetite for something greater and more glorious. And that appetite is tuned and directed towards the glory of God. Peace with God establishes this reality. And it trumps all other things in earth, on earth. And the key to suffering well is to be sure that when you say, I love the glory of God, that when the bottom falls out in life, that you remember, I love the glory of God. And God will help you to love His glory when the bottom falls out. When our daughter Sylvia was stillborn, A day before delivery, the grief that we experienced through the days that followed were unbelievable. I was, I was so, I was so sad, like scary sad. Scary sad because I never felt that way. I didn't know you could, you could cry that hard and you could feel those things that deeply and scary because of the fact not only that it was new, but it was like, this is not sustainable. You can't live with this level of pain. And and during our hospital stay, after Sarah had given birth to our deceased daughter, there was a nurse who who met really, really well. She was well-meaning. She was kind. She was trying. But she didn't have a peg to hang this on. And so she sat in her bed, and, and she said, I just want you to know that it's okay for you to be angry at God because of this. And I had a hundred things that ran through my head at that moment. And what came out of my mouth was something like, oh, I'm not. I'm not angry with God. How could I be angry with Him after all that He has done for us? Do you know why that thought even comes through the head of a grieving father? Do you know why that even came out of my mouth? It's because of being rooted and grounded in something more glorious, more attractive, more lovely, more compelling than even, I'm going to be blunt here, than an alive daughter. The glory of God, that's what we live for. That's what we long for. And the hope of the glory of God is the essence of what you cling to and believe in and you breathe when the bottom falls out. Because at the end of the day, believing and trusting in Christ means that you have a new appetite for things that are even greater than anything else that the world could ever offer you, including the really good things. This is the tragedy of not being a follower of Jesus, is that you're here today and the the effect is what you want is just want life to be like how you wanted it to be and and it's got to be safe and it's got to be successful and it's got to be smooth sailing and then you hit bumps in life and you're like, why are you doing this to me? And you have no place to hang the hardships of life. You don't know about sinfulness of sin and you don't know about peace with God and you have nothing, no category for the glory of God that transcends all pain and all hurt. Does it mean that sorrow is, 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 is less? No, it means we cry and cry hard. But it means it's not pointless or meaningless or ultimate. We hope in the glory of God. What's the second thing? How does peace connect to hardship? It means that we can trust that suffering is not pointless. 
Verse 3, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. And then he says this, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Notice what he does. He, you, notice all the times he uses the word produces, 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 produces. There is an idea that Paul says that what's happening to you is not pointless. There's an end game. God is doing something. There's a progression of what is happening. But the problem is, is that if you're a, not a follower of Jesus, you don't see the progression, and you don't care about the progression. You you just want the pain to stop. And for the follower of Jesus, they embrace the pain and they say, this is so incredibly hard. And yet I know that your word tells me that there is never anything in my life that happens that is outside of your good plan for my life. Romans 5, 3 to 4 identifies that the reason a follower of Jesus can rejoice in suffering is because of the fact that there is no pointless suffering. Let me say that a little more emphatically. There is never a time in the life of a believer, there is never, ever, ever, ever a time in the life of a believer when bad things are only bad. They're never only bad. Or you've heard me say it this way, hard is hard, but hard is not bad. Bad in the sense that there's no point to it. Romans 8 famously says this, we know that all things... For those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So there is nothing, if you're a follower of Jesus, listen to me, there is nothing in your life that is meaningless. Don't you believe a lie from the devil for a moment. There's no point to this. That is not true. It's not true. It's not true. You may not be able to see it. You may not be able to define it. You may not be able to get your head around it. But it is not pointless. It's not, it's not capricious. It's not God just flipping a coin and going, well, maybe they should suffer. Maybe they should. somehow, some way God has divine aims in all of this that work out for the evident display of his glory and for his glory to be manifest in and through your life. And I can't explain why he's given you the pain that he's given you or me the pain that he's given me. But all I know is that God is God and I am not. And his glory somehow, some way will be manifest through this. And I just am okay to trust him and believe God somehow, some way, you're going to take your glory from this awful thing. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you don't have a category for that. Because why? Because you don't know what it's like to taste and see the peace of God that comes through Jesus. He says that suffering produces endurance. What does that mean? It means that it, it demonstrates that God helping us, we can bear up under trials. The hope for a believer is not that the trial will go away because sometimes trials don't go away. Cancer doesn't get healed. The spouse doesn't return. The wayward child doesn't come home. The fact of the matter is there's, there's lots of scenes in Christians' lives that don't end with people riding off happily into the sunset. But the story is that's not the sunset. That's just our vision of the sunset. The story is, is that God is going to make all things new. And in the meantime, we're called to bear up under it, which means the freedom and trials do not come from getting away from the trial, but God giving you grace to endure it. That some way, some way, you say to your friend or to your spouse or to your kids, I know this is really hard, but somehow God's going to help us to make it through this. And I don't know how, and I don't see the end game right now, but somehow, some way, we're going to believe God's word is true, that he never gives us anything that's going to crush us, and we're not alone in this trial, and God will be faithful to his word, and we can, with this temptation, he's going to give us a way not to escape like run away, but the way to escape so we can bear up under it. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 
It produces endurance. It produces character. What does that mean? It means that as you come through suffering, you know that you're real and you know your faith is real. Some of you who've walked through suffering, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You went into suffering thinking, man, this is going to be so incredibly hard, and it was. And you look back, and yet you see the way that God preserved you, protected you, sustained you. Even in the moments of your weakness, God sustained you. And you come out of suffering like gold, believing, seriously, Christ is real. The Bible matters. God's truth does reign. And God helps people in their weakness and brokenness. It's like the hymn writer said, When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. You need to not just sing that, you need to believe that. You need to bleed that. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. That's theoretical when you just sing it. It is real when you have to live on it. When you wake up and go, Christ, you are my solid rock today, and you live all day in that reality. And then what that also gives you, according to this text, is hope. Suffering produces endurance. It produces character. It also produces hope. Now, Paul doesn't explain all of what this means. He gets into a little bit as it relates to the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that in a moment. But what I think it means is this, that suffering proves that peace with God can go the distance. Hope, meaning what I believe is real, and it works. It works. Seriously, it works. I can stare a grave in the face and go, you do not rule over me. I can deal with a, a breakup letter and go, this is not going to tank me forever. I can deal with a pink slip at a job and say, my life is not my job. I can deal with death of loved ones and physical issues and cancer and bad doctor's reports and people who break your heart. And you can say, at the end of the day, this is all a part of the brokenness of the world, but my aim in life and my treasure is God and his glory. And somehow, some way, this all works out in God's plan. And therefore, you hope and have hope at the beauty of what the gospel is. We can do what William Cowper in his poem, God Moves in Mysterious Ways, said we can believe that behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. Here's the third thing. And that is we can know that we are eternally loved. The final way that peace with God helps us in hardship is that we have an assurance, assurance, you can know that you know that you know that you know that you are loved by God. And so he says, and hope does not put us to shame. What does that mean? It means you'd be a fool to believe in something only then to find out that it doesn't really work. You believe, I have the peace of God, and then it doesn't work in suffering. When you come through suffering and it's proven that indeed it holds fast and God takes care of you and you can walk through deep waters and through the valley of pain then you are not put to shame. And he says, why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In other words, God is so passionate for you to know that everything in your life is part of his loving aims that he not, just, he not only told you and gave you the word, but he sent for believers in Jesus the personal presence of Christ mediated by the Holy Spirit to assure you over and over and over this is God's love not his wrath this is his kindness not his capriciousness this is God's compassion for you not being mean this is God's mercy his mercy and it's the Holy Spirit who is continually reminding us this is loving this is not this is hard but it's not awful this is difficult but it's not mean and he's given us the Holy Spirit by whom the witness 
within our spirits is confirmed that in fact God is being kind to us. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then you've probably not really ever suffered. Because when you're in the darkest of dark times, you pull up in the Bible and suddenly you land upon a verse of Scripture and it's like God just screamed from heaven, I love you. Or you're singing a song and it's like that word, that phrase, just lands on your heart and you're like, oh, that was me. And it was. God gave that to you. Or a friend puts their arm around you and says, I just want you to know, I don't know what's going on, but I'm praying for you. And you're like, God, you sent that person. All of that is part of the evident display of God's mercy, His love, and His grace. So how does peace with God work in hardship? It works because the fundamental and eternal problem of our sinfulness The fundamental problem of the wrath of God has been addressed by the death of Jesus. That God saved those who put their faith in Jesus. That God loves us. That He has peace with us. And that that, that settled condition has then given us an appetite for the glory of God. Given us a lens through which we can see suffering. So that while life is horribly hard and at times brutally unfair that there is meaning and purpose behind everything that we experience because the peace that we have with God establishes the basis upon which we deal with every and any hardship. So my question is this, is that how you see the cross? Is that how you see salvation? Do you you see peace with God to be so sweeping, so beautiful and so attractive that it pales in comparison with every other hardship in life? Do you understand what could happen if we really got this, what this would look like if you took this into your neighborhood? This means that you can live next to really hard people and love them. You can go into the marketplace and and work for the glory of God, and when other people's lives fall apart, you can be the anchor in the midst of the storm. It means that you can go and serve disenfranchised people in our city and do things that other people would look at and go, how in the world do you have the emotional fortitude to do that? The answer is because my anchor holds within the veil. That's how. It means that the most passionate, most visionary, most life-changing group of people on the planet ought to be the people who know that they have peace with God and they ought to be deployed to go back into their homes and neighborhoods and workplaces and regions of our city and all around the world because they have a settled assurance that God is for them. He's not against them. And so what in the world is the devil or the world or ISIS or Ebola or some person who's an atheist going to do? Bring it on. I just meet him earlier. There's a family that is connected to our church family for whom I've been praying for a while. They were a couple who were pursuing adoption, and it seemed as though everything was miraculously falling in place. It was an incredible story. The birth mom chose them right out of the gate. Their meetings with the birth mom went fabulously well. The mom even wanted the baby to go home with this couple during the waiting period when, when she has the opportunity to, to change her mind legally. And it, everything was just going perfectly. They got the room ready. Every, everything was all set. Took the baby home. I got pictures on my phone of this beautiful little girl. 
And just when they allowed their emotions to settle in and like, oh, they got a phone call that the birth mom had changed her mind. And this weekend they had to do the gut-wrenching but right thing of returning the birth mom, returning the baby back to the birth mom. And having watched this scenario play out personally and in the lives of many people, I have to tell you that there are few things more tragic and more painful than this. And yet this couple believes, even in their tears, that God is still good. They are sobbing saints. And over the weekend I got a text forwarded to me. It says this, We dropped off our little girl about an hour ago. We grieved all day, but had a lot of great memories. We gave her a first bath, took pictures in her shark robe. Gave her presents to open someday, wrote in her Bible, and wrote her letters. And we sent all her stuff with our baby and gave it to the birth mom. We were able to speak truth over her, truth to the birth mom and to her mother and family about our absolute need for a Savior and that our ultimate desire was for this little girl to know Christ and love Him. And then they said this, that was what we cared about more than anything else. How do you say that? Because you love the glory of God more, that's how. And then they say, thank you for praying. We feel utterly broken, but we know that God is in absolute control. And that's where we are at. That is how peace with God helps in hardship. Because God is not boring. Theology is relevant. And Christianity works. Especially when the bottom drops out. Peace with God means hope in hardship. Would you bow with me in prayer? As we close today, what I would like to do is there are some of you here who are walking through very difficult times. Hardship would be a good word to describe where you are. And as we close, I would like to pray for you. In order to pray for you, you can pray right where you, I can pray for you right where you're seated, but I think it might also be good for you to identify, yes, Lord, you know it, and I just want to say it. I'm in a hard place. And so if that would fit with where you are and you'd want to be prayed for in that sort of way, I'm just going to pray out loud over you. But here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to stand. And I'm just going to pray for those of you who would self-identify and say, yeah, that's, that's me. I'm in a hard place. And so would you do that right now? Stand. I'm in a hard place. Lord, you know it. And I just, as a statement of my belief in your word and in your promises, I'm just standing to say, Lord, I get it, I believe it, but it's really hard. If you happen to be sitting next to someone who's standing, maybe you can just grab their hand or put your arm on their shoulder. Or just reach out to them to let you know that you see it and you're there with them. And then let's pray together. Father, for these who are standing today, who this is not a theoretical idea. This is today. This is right now. 
And while I don't know all of the intricacies, and I don't know in many cases any of the intricacies of what's happening in their life, you do, and I'm so grateful that you do, and thank you that your word is true, and there is nothing in their life that is outside of your kind plan And we don't know how those words work, how kindness and hardship, how those are reconciled, we don't know. But we do know that you've told us that they do, and you're God, and we're not, and we're okay with that. And we're anchoring our lives, and I'm asking you to anchor their lives on the reality that those who know Christ have peace with God, and that one thing changes everything. So be their help today, Lord. And let people who have suffered and walked through deep waters be able to come alongside these brothers and sisters and pull them along and to say, you can make it, God will help you, and I'm going to walk with you. So thank you that we have the Word and the Spirit and community by which we walk every day. So Lord, would you make your Word and your glory the treasure of these dear brothers and sisters' lives. Help them to endure all the way to the end, trusting you. And we ask this in the authoritative name of Jesus, our conquering King. In his name we pray. All God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming today.